Welcome everyone to the launch of our ESG and Sustainability Unpacked podcast. We're excited to have you all here to our very first episode of our two-part series on post-COP28. I'm your host, Marilyn Obaisa-Osula, and I head the ESG and Sustainability practice at PwC Nigeria. We begin a critical examination of the outcomes of COP28 and how this affects us in Africa not just us as individuals, but also as a country, as a continent, country, and organizations. As you may all know, COP refers to the Conference of Parties by the United Nations Convention of Climate Change. And this event has happened year on year since 1995 in Berlin, Germany. And so far, there have been three critical ones before the COP28. First was COP21, where the Paris Agreement happened and we all committed to slowing down the global warming. The second was COP26, where commitments were called to question, and COP27, where for the first time, how this affects us as developing and developed countries were brought to the forefront of the discussion. Recently completed was the COP28, where the conversations around developed and developing countries were deeper, and there were more um, more uh, fundamental conversations around how you know, companies or countries have done so far within um, the climate change space. It's been a month now, we've gone on holiday and we are back, but the conversation that happened in December definitely is going to affect us from this year and, and going forward. And with me today is um, a panel of Africans from the climate change space, um, three of who were part of the delegates to um, the COP28 from the African uh, region of PwC and a doctor who is very, very known in the climate change space as well. And the first discussant with me is Lulu. Um, Lulu is a partner in strategy and our chief economist. I'm sure you can see her in the call. And our PwC, she is also the sustainability platform leader. And by this, it means that as she plays a role to help us coordinate our effort as we engage and support African organizations on climate change impact and their sustainability aspirations. Second on the call is Chantelle Vandervaert, a director in strategy and sustainability and climate change in South Africa. She focuses on ESG transformation and climate adaptation strategy. Also on the call, it's a senior manager in our sustainability and climate change practice, also from South Africa, who focuses on just energy transition. And with me as well is Dr. Mohamed Dahiru Aminu, a policy manager on methane pollution prevention in Africa with the Clean Air Tax Force. Dr. Mohamed has deep expertise in climate change and he will let us know if what he's been doing scientifically really, really has the effect on us as an organization or even as our businesses. Please join me to welcome my discussant and as we go into the first discussion um, on the agenda. Thank you very much, everyone. Chantel, you were a member of uh, the delegates to the African delegates to COP28. And definitely you've saw things firsthand for yourself. Also being someone who has played critical role in advising clients on ESG transformation and their climate adaptation strategy. Please let us know what happened at COP28. How does this affect us in terms of um, climate adaptation? What is the discussion all about? 
what should we be looking at? Um, we here have the first ever global stock take. That was new. Can you just give us some insight on that? Thanks, Chantel. Over to you. Thanks so much, Marilyn. Great. So lovely to be here this morning. Uh, so the global golden adaptation, and I think it's really good to start here because as Africa and as communities that are very vulnerable to the changes in our en environment, um, we need to be focused on how we think through adaptation, how we think through what we are going to do in response to the resilience that we need. So the, the goal was really about enhancing our ad adaptive capacity, about strengthening resilience, reducing vulnerability to climate change. And many sectors, if not all sectors, um, are needing to think through adaptation. While some might be more in the spotlight in terms of mitigation, every single sector will need to think through what does it need to do to change, to enhance and remain future fit and future proof. Um, and so that's really when we talk adaptation, what we're thinking through. What are the technologies, the finance, the capacity building that we need in order to remain um, relevant and successful despite all the change that we see around us. So as we were at COP28 on the ground, a very, very hot year was experienced. In fact, it was the hottest year on record. And our global average surface temperature then was more than two degrees higher than the pre-industrial levels for the first time in November. So we are already in a world that is, is experiencing the impact of the emissions in our atmosphere. And that was echoed in Davos this year um, when the World Economic Forum released their global risk report. And those environmental risks that make up half of the top 10 risks over the next 10 years name things like extreme weather events, critical earth system changes, ecosystem collapse. Um, so our link to water, our link to natural resources, the ability to farm and produce food, um, the ability to live healthy lives um, in an, a system that is safe and operating effectively um, is really at risk. And, and now is our time to think through how are we going to respond. And we need to do that in a way that is cohesive and connected. So we can't just be thinking about our energy system and um, the way that we think through transition, which is really important. And I know we're going to talk about it soon. But we need to be thinking about how do we manage nature loss? How do we manage um, our plastics, our waste, um, the impact that we have more broadly than carbon emissions on our social systems and on our environmental systems? And that is what the goal for adaptation really points to for me. And so what we've got to get right there are the quantification of targets and making sure that we have the right financial support. The finance gap um, that was recognized and echoed at Davos already um, after COP was that it's around 300 billion US dollar gap. So we really got to think through how we're going to get access to the right people and the right projects that's going to um, help our communities um, prevent extreme loss and damage from climate impact and think through how they can be um, resilient to the changes that they're going to experience in their respective sectors. But on a positive note, Marilyn, I think we have as Africa already demonstrated a good ability to adopt and advance um, in the technology field. So we don't have to be dependent on the systems that have been in place, perhaps in other countries or in our own. Um, and we can look at to the globe and see how we can um, move towards those decentralized nature positive technologies, because those are the solutions when we get them to scale that are really going to help us with our adaptation goal. Thanks, Marilyn.
Thank you. Very interesting. I think I, I, I quite agree with you because sometime in January, I like you know, I got a call from one of our partners to say you need to talk about uh, climate change. It's raining in Lagos in January, and that's really weird. And he had also had you know a friend call to say, look, I've spoken to my farmer colleagues to say don't plant. This is this is a weird rain. It rained so heavily, people were really surprised because it's not supposed to be raining at that time. So really, we are beginning to get those effects. And, you know, how the farmers adapt to this is all interconnected, um, um, like you said. Uh, it's not just one sector. There's a lot of sectors that need to look into this. And, and uh, you know, we just really, really have to focus on this. Also, I have a small nephew who had said to me, climate change is easy to, to change. Just put money in electric cars and we'll be fine. So over to finance. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> so our children are also thinking about this as well. You know, so it's, 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 it's a concern. And it's a, it's things that we all, all have to look at. Now, while there are, you know, risk and opportunities in that, you know, we can't look away from the climate finance. And everyone is asking, especially those in the finance sector, and I can see the CFOs on the call. I'm sure they're really listening. We want to understand this climate finance. And over to you, Lulu. Uh, as our chief economist, I think we need you to really break this down. You were also part of the delegation, the African delegation to COP28 for PwC, and you were right on ground when all the figures had been talked about. 300 billion, a gap. But what is exactly is the finance world saying about this? Thank you. Over to you. Thanks, Marilyn. I think um, one of the, the key things that we've noticed over the last couple of years is, you know, there's been commitments to to the extent of about $100 billion annually. And that has not been uh, disseminated. It was not met. Those targets were not met by the countries that made those targets. So we've gone through a process to actually say, let's take stock. Um, it was actually called the Global Stock Take to acknowledge that we didn't get there. And we are now in a process, something that started out um, at COP28, uh, to come up with a collective quantified goal of what do we need. Um, now, the range of funding that is needed is at the moment estimated any, anywhere almost close to 6 trillion US uh, dollars, so between 5.8 and 5.9 trillion, up to 2030, uh, to actually meet the needs and the priorities of developing countries. Um, so we, we didn't get there in the past. We know that there's a lot more that's needed. Um, and countries, Countries, especially in the developed world, that have committed money has said we realized we, we fell short of it. So now we need to go through a process to actually figure out what have we committed and what do we still need. Um, the Green Climate Fund also um, added another $3.5 billion to uh, what has already been committed. But as Shantala said, we're still some way off where we need to be. And the fact of the matter is we need to come up with innovative ways to disseminate green finance. Um, you know, if you look at typical infrastructure projects, for example, um, there's certain risks and rewards and ways that we've become used to doing things. And the truth is we need a different approach for green projects and green finance. We need to think differently from the way that we've been doing things and, uh, some of the ideas, some of the innovative ideas that have been coming up and that people have been discussing, rolling out, et cetera, is uh, trading systems, greenhouse tra uh, gas trading systems, green bonds, green loans, 
A very interesting one for me personally is debt for climate swaps. Uh, you know, so that's a, that's a, although swaps is something that's common in the financial wor- world. And now we're talking about how do we roll it out in the climate environment? And then also looking at public private partnerships. This is crucial because, um, what we're seeing is governments are saying we have funding, but up to a particular level. And the private sector is saying we have funding. But there's a risk component that we're not comfortable with. And we need these two parties to get together and to meet each other to actually uh, breach that. So the question is, how can the traditional finance institutions adapt the way that they're doing things? And how can governments actually come to the table and say, well, we are able to breach that gap? And that's where the development finance institutions and developed countries in particular um, come, come in. And then the last bit, and, and that's probably um, as exciting, if not even more exciting than some of these innovative financing ideas that we're talking about, is new technology. Um, at what point do we scale? How do we scale? Because we need to do things fast. That's the point. Um, and I think Africa as a continent has proven that we are ready to take on new technology. If you look at certain industries, telcos, IT, um, uh, new, you know, uh, communication technologies, other types of technologies, we can actually leapfrog. And, and we've seen some very, very interesting things already being done on the continent. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, um, Lulu. I just wanted to also um, mention, uh, I did, I had to challenge at a particular forum uh, a group of CFOs to say, especially from, you know, probably the financial sector, financial sector to say, hey, I looked through the accredited parties for the Green Climate Fund, for example. It was hard to see so many African financial institutions there. And they're there, but not so many. Why is this? And we are the ones really looking forward to, you know, harnessing this. And I see there is fund and there's finance, uh, you know, open for, for African, um, African organizations to, to, to go for. But we seem to see a slow uptake. Why is this the issue? I mean, what do you think it's the is the problem? Because even if we keep on talking about climate finance and the uptake is really slow, then we're not going to still meet up with all the goals that has been set in, in COP, at COP28. Marilyn, it's complex, but I think um, one of the key messages that I've picked up is if you look at some of the solutions that the developed world wants to provide and how they want to finance uh, some of these initiatives. Development finance institutions have very specific criteria. They would say, I only finance this type of project, or I only do this or do that. And that kind of approach is quite possible if you're looking at a developed nation where everybody has, let's say, access to electricity, and we now need to move to an alternative source of energy. But if you look at Africa, you know, you would have a community, for example, and Some people in the community would need electricity 24-7. Others would say, listen, I'm at an income level where I can't afford full electricity, for example, but I would like to keep my fridge running at least for for some time. So we have to come up with with diverse solutions. And it seems that we are struggling uh, to get the development finance institutions to buy into that, to articulate that, to pull all the parties together. And in some instances also, you know, as Africa, we don't necessarily know how to structure that. So there's a, there's a very important bit in the middle 
where we need to think about technical on the ground solutions. It's often about what happens on the ground and how do we do that. Um, and then the other thing that I hear, but I'm less convinced of that, is that governments in Africa are not necessarily always very clear about their policy approaches. So, you know, when companies or um, development finance institutions or, uh, you know, whoever is looking at it, they're thinking, but I'm not sure where this government is going and they're not being clear about their policy objectives. So that is something, but I think that's probably less of an issue. I think the bigger thing is that um, the solutions that is currently being used in the developed world cannot be just, you know, but plug in, uh, um, copy and paste onto the South Africa or the African environment. Sorry, that sounds like there's a lot of opportunities there for you know for structuring, for frameworks, for deep discussions. You know, guiding government, you know, even organizations, private partnership discussions, and things like that. And I, I look forward to seeing Africa do a lot of those this year and going forward, so we can harness more of the climate finance. But lastly, to you still, um, Lulu. It's on the lost and damaged fund that excited Africa at the COP27. What is it like now at COP28? What is it? Where is it after COP28? So as you mentioned, at COP27, when we in, uh, eventually reached that agreement to set up a lost and damaged fund, everybody was really excited about it. But the challenge is that, um, again, similar to finance, uh, this the dissemination and bringing everybody in board and implementing um, the fund at this point in time is still a challenge. We have still some way to go. A lot of commitments have been made, about 700 million USD from various countries. Um, so it's a step in the right direction, but we're slow in terms of implementing. And, you know, the bottom line is, as Chantal said earlier, we just cannot afford to drag our feet any longer. Yeah, absolutely. So we look forward to seeing some progress in that area. Thank you, Lulu, for that. And now going to technology, um, going to the sector that speaks to climate change. And when I speak to clients and we're talking, some will say, you know what, this climate change discussion has no business with me. But when we take it to energy, everyone's ear is open because there's no organization, no country, no individual who doesn't use energy. And that's why the term just energy transition is very important. This is where the impact really hits everyone you know, very critically. We could have said agriculture, yes, but more more critically, the energy sector. And so to discuss this is, uh, Matt, over to you. Uh, it looks like finally uh, there's a, there's an understanding that the transition between the developing countries and the just transition for uh, developed countries can't go at the same pace. Uh, and that's definitely some of the outcomes from the COP28. But you were there on ground. What was the perception? What do you think? Did it make sense to people? Uh, were there any critical agreements that were made? Uh, what should organizations be looking at? Because the transition will definitely happen, but everyone then needs to key, key, key into it in one way or the other. Can you take us through that? Thank you, Matt. Thanks, Marilyn. Yeah, so at COP, there was, there was some really big agreements, one of the biggest being um, the final wording of the text, which talked to transitioning away from all fossil fuels, which is the first time that all fossil fuels have been included in that in that in the final wording of a out of a COP. Um, I think what what's important for Africa is, you know, we've got 
over 600 million people in Africa who don't currently have access to to electricity in bigger. And traditionally, the the way that the population have gone gone about this is ac- either accessing you know energy through burning fossil fuel or traditionally through fossil fuels um, because they're cheap and it's the it's the source that Africa's got access to at this point in time. Um, but alongside that uh, that, that the wording in COP, there was also a commitment to triple the world's um, renewable energy capacity as well as doubling energy efficiency within the, the next decade. And I think that's vitally important for Africa. Mm-hmm. What it does mean is there's a potential risk of jobs, uh, job losses in the traditional fossil fuel sectors. Um, and so what is also important in the final text is that there was wording that then spoke to doing this in a just, orderly and equitable manner. And I think that's vitally important for Africa. With the renewable energy coming into the continent, um, you know what we've seen in this space is that a lot of predictions around re- renewable energy growth have, have just been completely out. And uh, the IEA last year had to update their predictions around how quickly the world's going to hit its renewable energy targets. And that's because of the, the, the cost of renewable electricity at a sort of a utility scale at this point in time. It's one of the cheapest sources of electricity for for utility. Um, so that even if we don't do any further changes around policy and legislation, the cost side of things is going to drive renewable energy forward. So with that, obviously, there's a, a lot of potential for the creation of jobs um, within the, the green sectors. But... You know, the, the just transition still needs to be managed because you don't necessarily translate people from fossil fuels into the green sectors. And, and so how do we manage that? And I think this is where Africa starts to sort of stand above the rest because we often see Africa, you know, hasn't quite got to grips with it. You know, we still have so many people that don't have access to electricity and this sort of stuff. But really shining lights, and I'm going to use the South Africa example, is in 2020. To South Africa released its uh, just transition framework that was developed by its Presidential Climate Change Commission. This was then adopted by Cabinet, and it's a world first for, for our country to develop such a framework that guides a, trans- a just transition forward. Um, it talks to practical issues relating to you know jobs, the local economy, skills that are needed, what are the governance systems that are needed, um, and really sets out a framework for how we move from fossil fuels to renewables. And as I say, like the world is moving there, whether we want to move or not, the the, the economy, economics behind it just makes sense. But there, there's a few things that we've spoken about in terms of this. And I think what's going to be key and, and listening to some of the Davos conversations was one of the, the key messages that came out to me was this, this word collaboration. Um, and, you know, Lulu spoke about the finance side of things and that collaboration between the public-private how that goes forward is going to be so critical to Africa achieving its energy transition agenda and making sure that we bring people along with us on that journey. Thank you, Matt. I think what's very interesting I see in Africa is the innovation that um, also the just transition is driving. Um, you know, like you said, the, the uptake of renewable energy is really growing very strong, especially because it's coming from a challenge where there's not enough you know, people are, there's no enough access to the energy, especially the home at the home front. And so you see people really, you know, picking up on that. And it, it, it then tells the, the, the finance world where to, you know, drive finance to. So we hope that we would get innovation that is scalable, uh, that would drive equitable um, energy um, sources and 
in a sustainable manner. And, you know, Africa gets to industrialize as well in a sustainable manner. I think those covers all those concerns. But I agree with you. The economics make sense. And if they're scalable and we get good finance for that, that will drive a lot. And it would also help with the climate change. Luckily, Africa is not emitting as much. But still, if we industrialize sustainably, we then we will be in a better place than uh, most of the developed world. And I look forward to seeing Africa doing that. Arising from that is going scientific. Like, you know, you said uh, you know, quite a lot. And I will just move over to Dr. Mohammed. Dr. Mohammed, uh, you've done a lot around methane. You know a lot about all the gases that, you know, you know, are beginning to cause or have been causing the climate change issues and discussions. I just want you to tie that to business. I want you to also tie that to um, the effects that it will happen per sector and what your general perception would be. Thank you, Dr. Um, Mohammed. Hello, everyone. Thank you very much for having me here today on this podcast. With regards to the question on methane emissions and how viable it is for African countries to be able to take advantage of the opportunities that lie in cutting down emissions of methane, it's important to start by recognizing that methane is a powerful greenhouse gas and it is a short-lived climate pollutant or an SLCP as we sometimes call it. It is primarily emitted by human activities and it has an atmospheric lifetime of around 12 years. Now, methane severely exacerbates climate change. This is no news. But also, it has a number of indirect effects on human health, crop yields, and the health of vegetation through its role as a precursor to the formation of tropospheric ozone. Having said that, I think that it is important to recognize that the problem of methane emissions and how to reduce it lies solely in understanding, first and foremost, that methane emissions mitigation is not as expensive as carbon dioxide emissions mitigation. So usually the funding that is required to reduce methane emissions may involve doing simple things or simple practices in the industry, such as closing your lid or checking how effective are your valves or checking how efficient um, are your um, pipeline for transporting natural gas, etc., so this leads us to simple plumbing issues. This is not the case when you compare methane with carbon dioxide mitigation, which might sometimes involve doing bigger things, requiring bigger amount of money, um, such as retrofitting industries that have already been existing for many years, and you need to do a major structural change on those industries in order for you to fit in carbon capture and storage facilities to transport this carbon uh, that you have been able to capture uh, by pipelines that may stretch across kilometers and then finding suitable geologic formations somewhere where you will bury the CO2 and uh, you are expected to do some monitoring over time periodically to ensure that 
there are no leakage and um, security is well contained and so on. Methane is not in that category because most of the time, what you are saving when you reduce methane emissions will be paid for, um, or rather, I mean, the effort that you will put in or the funding that you require in checking methane emissions will be paid for by the gas or the methane or the natural gas that you are actually saving. So it's very, very cost effective as it has been demonstrated in many parts of the world. Again, that being said, the second issue to note here is that there is the need to work towards having ambitious policies for all sectors that emit methane um, by African government. So I'm now talking as an African, given that the question directed to me um, is a question about um, looking at the African perspective on methane emissions and how Africa can uh, play a role in effectively um, mitigating methane from different sectors. So I think there is need to have ambitious policies from all sectors, whether this sector is oil and gas, whether it is agriculture, whether it is um, waste, organic waste, um, and so on. Um, again, there is also need to mention here that Nigeria has an existing methane guideline or methane um, regulations in from the, for the oil and gas industry in the country. So Nigeria is the first African country to approve methane guidelines. For the oil and gas industry, I think this is exemplary and this is um, worthy of commendation. Um, we are working with Nigerian government, particularly the Nigerian Upstream Petroleum Regulatory Commission, to support the commission in ensuring that those regulations are well implemented. Um, we are supporting them with policy and technical guidance to ensure that the operators that the NUPRC or the Nigerian government is regulating is able to understand the need to effectively make use of those regulations. Having said that, there is need for other African countries, whether they are oil and gas producers or countries where you could have methane emissions from other sectors, to also consider the need to have guidelines. You know, um, even in the oil and gas industry, uh, the work is not yet done because if you take Nigeria, for instance, we only have methane guidelines for the upstream petroleum sector. We don't have those guidelines for the midstream and downstream sector. So an organization like the NMDPRA that takes care of activities in the midstream and downstream part of the oil sector in Nigeria needs to also come up with decent regulations that reduces methane emissions. There is the need, I believe, for African countries to replicate what is happening in Nigeria, um, not only for the oil and gas industry in Nigeria, but also for all the other sectors that we believe 
um, contribute significant uh, methane emissions to the atmosphere. Um, again, Nigeria is leading the way, so if there are any lessons that we could learn from that, uh, probably other African countries can leverage the lessons learned um, in Nigeria um, to avoid uh, whatever challenges that may come their way um, during policy formulation as well as um, the most important aspect of it, which is policy implementation, effective policy implementation. Talking about commitments on methane emissions globally, um, the COP that took place in Dubai, which I believe is COP28, that took place um, last year, 2023, is so far the biggest COP that ever happened from the perspective of methane emissions. Um, what do I mean by that? I mean that there has never been any COP previously that had considered methane emissions mitigation at the level or at the magnitude that the recently concluded COP in Dubai had done. We all know that there are commitments um, such as those um, that were termed lowering organic waste methane or low methane. And out of several of those commitments, I will say that low methane um, is one of those initiatives that seek to spur intense global action to cut methane emissions from the waste sector. And under the low methane initiative, there is this desire to deliver at least 1 million metric tons of annual waste sector methane reductions well before 2030 by working with 40 subnational jurisdictions and their national government counterparts to unlock up to 10 billion USD in public and private investments. This is a huge commitment. And beyond oil and gas, this is a suggestion or an indication that methane emissions from other sectors are also gaining a lot of momentum. Now, when you look at these commitments closely, you will see that it is suggesting the need to move away from majorly focusing on mitigation efforts from oil and gas um, to other areas that will include waste. Personally, I believe that those who are involved in methane emissions mitigation activities from policy to technology and whatnot, um, and here I am talking from experience, I think people like me and many others who are in this sector who are working on methane need to even diversify our skills to become perhaps experts, if we can, in other sectors that emit methane beyond the oil and gas sector, where we have or where I could say that I have some considerable advantage by having been educated 
um, in the areas of geoscience and petroleum engineering and carbon capture and storage and um, other allied subjects within the environment, uh, this, the environmental space. Um, this suggests to me that also there is the need to probably start looking at emissions from agriculture. Let's not forget that agriculture contributes a lot of methane emissions, mainly from enteric fermentation, from cows or ruminants, um, and also from digesters. You know, so there is a lot of research and development that is going on in the area of um, agri-methane mitigations. Uh, but then there will probably be more commitments in the future in that area, just as we are seeing for waste. As um, if, if I mean, if um, the commitments that we've seen so far from COP28 in Dubai is any indication. So I feel African countries can easily key into these commitments because the, the will is there, the global commitment and the will globally is there. So all that African countries need to do is to ensure that they are ready or African leaders need to do is to ensure that they are ready to work towards implementing or formulating and implementing global best practices in the form of policies for methane emissions mitigation in different sectors. I will say that there is a lot of opportunities to work on um, emissions and we shouldn't relent. Thank you. Fantastic conversation, Dr. Mohamed. Thank you so much for taking us through this very interesting conversation. Um, now we're going over to uh, the opportunities. Chantel, you spoke about um, climate adaptation and um, you know, you know, the transformation required. Let's bring it down to our everyday um, business, our everyday work. What three areas of uh, the economy do you think that the climate change is going to push? What three new areas or emerging areas do you think that the climate change is going to push as a very great opportunity for countries? Okay, so I think I'm going to draw back, uh, Marilyn, to my initial points around the links and how we need to solve in the system. Um, and I think one of our big opportunities is to start thinking about it in the way that we are solving for more than just carbon em emissions and the mitigation, but we're also solving for increasing quality of life. So we're decoupling our growth and our industrialization um, from the impact that that has had in the way it was done before. And there's so many lessons that we can learn from other economies that didn't decouple and are, are suffering from the result of air pollution, nature loss, um, ecosystem collapse, so water scarcity. So let's think about in terms of the, the big growth areas, I think it's going to be those that are able to help us decouple. So we are using less resources to get the result we want in terms of quality of life, human health, um, access to finance, access to opportunities, uh, new business opportunities. Um, and so if we think about it at the moment, over half our total GDP um, it equates to about 44 trillion US dollar. 
is moderately or highly dependent on natural resources. Um, and so therefore, if we you know, look at how we are at risk in that area, the opportunity to turn that on its head is um, that if we can create business value, let's, let's be entrepreneurs and create new businesses that solve for our water crisis, our health crises, um, access to finance, access to technology, um, and create business value, um, we can see sort of trillions of dollars rather in the positive, as well as new jobs um, linked to sort of addressing some of our sustainable development goals by 2030. And um, so there's definitely ways, and I know I'm, I'm being high level, but I think the key principle is um, we've got to be creative in the way we think through how we do business. What is going to generate revenue in the yeah. future is going to look different from how we generated revenue in the past. And yes. if we can be creative about circular thinking and redesign, design out waste, those are going to be the things that are going to really, really sort of leapfrog society and be very, very popular in terms of investor circles. Absolutely. So we're looking at things like the circular economy, the green economy, the blue economy. Interesting times ahead. Um, we, we hear about creating jobs like the green jobs. I don't know if there's something called blue jobs, but let's see. But there's green jobs, I know. Uh, so there's loads of opportunities. And I see, especially a lot of our Generation Z and millennials picking up this uh, innovation and, you know, quite exciting. We hope the finance structures will then pick up, pick up pace with that. Um, also, just going back again to the lost and, uh, and damaged fund, uh, I think uh, from what we see, I think what we need, the, the countries need to look at right now is to say, who is the custodian of this fund? Uh, who, is, who, is, who is the fund with? Uh, I don't know. Where exactly is this fund going to sit? Is it the World Bank, IFC? Uh, what's the approach? And things like that. Lulu, what do you think about that? Uh, I think that loss and damage will be very, very critical for Africa in terms of adaptation, especially. Um, there's a lot of flooding issues. Uh, there's energy issues. And people also want to pick up on, on, on those kinds of funds. How do you see that going forward? Yeah, Marilyn, I think that's a conversation that we get back to quite often, as they say. But, you know, as Africa, we're definitely not the main contributors to climate change so why should we pay for it first of all and then secondly we and other developing nations are most severely impacted by it um the world economic uh forum uh chantal mentioned that the the risk uh risk global risk report um in the beginning of the conversation and one of the key things there that's been highlighted this is as a risk is where people have to be have to forcibly migrate you know um, because of uh, circumstances, either flooding or droughts or so and so on. And we're going to see a lot of that, unfortunately, in Africa, if it is going to happen. Um, so I think, and that's that's the point where, where adaptation comes in as well. We can, you know, there's mitigation that we can do, but some of these things are going to happen. So how are we going to look at it? How are we going to help those countries and, and people? And that's where the loss and damage fund comes in. However, it's been a bit controversial, you know. Um, it's, uh, I suppose, it's a little bit, and I don't want to equate it to to that kind of relationship. But you know, if you parent, if you're a parent and you give your child money and you want to look at how they spend it, I think there's a little bit involved in that. And of course, you of that involved, and and of course, you want to get to a point where 
Um, the money goes where it's most needed and has the most significant impact. So that's part of the challenge with a loss and damage fund at the moment is how would the application process be managed? Um, how much would go where? Uh, who'd, how do we manage it? And the thinking at the moment is to try and make that as diverse and as objective as possible. You definitely don't want a situation where everything is um, is managed by the developed world. Let's be honest, if we look, for example, at some of the money that was distributed during COVID, um, a lot of that funding through the IMF actually ended up in the developed world, although that was not the intention. So that is really something that we need to, to guard against at the moment. Having said that, I want to come back to what I said earlier. It's really crucial that we get moving on this. So let's sort that out, not be precious, realize that this is a problem that affects all of us and is going to impact all of us. So um, let's get to a solution and get moving. Yeah, absolutely. The fund has been marked for developing countries and um, the small island developing countries um, as well. So we hope that, that we in this particular, you know, with this, within that definition, we'll push for it to ensure that this is operationalized because I think it will go a long way in the country. So we're going to our final words, just like in one sentence each, um, you know, just to give our final thoughts on, on this. Uh, I know one of the critical things people will wonder, you know, listening to this is, okay, how does this affect my business? I think it's time to begin to look at those particular, especially the diverse uh, WF uh, risk and ask yourself critical questions. Where are my risks? Where are my opportunities? What's my strategy? Because the future will be different. I mean, enough of talking about it, but it's already looking so. So you need to begin to look at that um, and very quickly as well. So your final words, I will start with Matt. In one sentence, what would be your final words to everyone um, on the call? Thanks, Madeline. I think to make it practical, it's, it's where do I start from an energy perspective? And so I think really, you know, you want to start with, efficiencies how do i use less electricity or energy in my business i think that's a fundamental starting point because that saves you money over time it means you need to buy less or, or get less energy going forward so that's the starting point for me then i think it's it's then looking at what are the incentive structures in my in my in my environment you know from a regulatory perspective are there tax breaks anything like that that i can explore to help me fund you know sort of an energy transition and then lastly, it is that procuring of, of, of energy and some a stable source of energy, hopefully a green source of energy. And I think that's where, and I've spoken about collaboration is so key. You know, in South Africa, we're working um, on a, a sort of an aggregator model with government and, and, and private business where there's people that are wanting to sell power, there's people that are wanting to buy power. And I think coming together and, this, you know, working together is really where we can achieve this because... Trying to do this on your own, it costs too much, it's too much of a headache. So let's tap into using each other, you know, pooling money, it, 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 it saves costs. As I said, utility scale renewable electricity is cheap. So thinking about this on a bigger scale is really the way to go about it. Final words for me are that we should recognize as Africans that these commitments for GHG mitigation um, whether it's carbon dioxide or methane emissions demonstrate a promise but moving from commitments to action 
requires recognizing that governments and the private sector and the civil society etc need to come together and work in synergy toward achieving a common goal for mitigation and if need be adaptation thank you very much absolutely and there's quite a lot of opportunities also in the in the carbon market as well with the carbon credit um the voluntary market at least for now as it's been you know they they've been criticized there be a lot of criti- um, critical uh, constructive criticism on those uh, on the market but i think it's improving and they 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 really um scaling up with the, uh, the voluntary market on carbon credit there's a lot to talk about we can't do that within 30 minutes and so we need to um look up towards our part 2 there will be a part 2 of this um post uh, 28 but this time we'll be speaking more practically and just trickling down things but you know we needed to start with how it went how it affects africa and what we should be thinking about so i'll just take the final words from chantel i think we had a lot from uh from lulu so let's just take the final words from chantel and please stay tuned um as we um uh, look forward to um uh, the second part of this uh cop28 uh post cop28 series and please send us your questions as well and chantel will be giving us the closing thank you chantel over to you Thank you for that opportunity. Great. So I would say let's look at our operating context differently. Fresh eyes on on what we could achieve out of this risk dilemma and challenge we have. Um don't discount the future and let's let's really prioritize those sustainable development goals. Thank you everyone and see you at the next post cop 28 um discussion send us your questions so that we are addressing them you know as you as to make you happy yeah thank you everyone bye